Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Hey, good morning. I don't think I've ever been more overhyped in my entire life, but thank you, Spence. Also, hello to the Northeast campus and also those watching online. Uh, when Spence, who's a good friend of mine, reached out to me a little while ago during his sabbatical, come sabbatical coming, and he said, will you please come to Mercy Church and preach in July? I said, absolutely, because I've always been a big fan of what's happening here through this church uh, from a distance. So it's been really neat to get the chance to see it all up close. So I'm grateful and thankful to be a part of it today. Let's jump in and we'll pray together first. And we'll be in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, talking about what I believe is the number one most prominent religion slash spiritual belief in all of America. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. I ask we'll be faithful stewards of it this morning. Lord, I ask that you speak through me. I ask you keep the enemy out of this place and out of this city, that you be with all the churches they gather today. Lord, and I ask that we will be people who receive your word, apply it to our lives, and make the greatness of Jesus known in our community. We're thankful for the work of Jesus on our behalf through his death and resurrection. We take confidence in it, and we ask that you bless us in the name of Christ. Amen. So what is the most prominent religious belief in America? Well, I have zero data to back that up. Uh, So for those of you who uh, are in research field or in university studies, forgive me for that. Uh, It's more of an eye test. Uh, it's more of just seeing and a feel for what's out there, what you hear so regularly. And I believe the number one religion in America isn't even a defined religion. The number one spiritual belief in America isn't even an actual category of belief. And I think you're going to agree with me when I unpack it for a minute. And that is that good people go to heaven. Everyone I know believes that. At every funeral I've ever been to, we're always told, we're just so thankful that he's in a where? Better place. We're so thankful that grandpa and grandma are reunited again. She missed him so much. We just know right now that Uncle Billy's fishing at the big bass lake in the sky. When UNC hit that three-pointer, we could hear grandpa scream from heaven, right? It's, like, it, it, it's that kind of idea, because the reality is that most people find themselves to be really good folks. I'm a good person. I've never met anyone before that would say I'm a bad person. I mean, we're good people. And the reason why they're telling us that grandpa's in a better place and that Uncle Billy's fishing in the sky and Uncle Frank's playing the 18 holes in heaven is simply because they're great guys. She was a great lady, shirt off your back kind of person, the most amazing mom the most amazing grandmother, made the best biscuits in three counties, hardworking mom, worked two jobs and cared for the kids just to help provide for the family. And here's what makes this so complicated for those of us who believe that salvation comes through Christ alone. And that is that they're right. They are really good people. She really is great at what she does. He really will give you the shirt off his back. You really would trust them to babysit your kids. 
They really are the person who would pull over if you have a flat tire and help you change it. They're really good people. So we're not refuting the fact that they're good because they are by the standards of this world. But God does not judge us according to how we measure up to other people or keep up with the morality version of the Joneses. God's standard that he judges by is himself. Luke chapter 18, we'll see this isn't actually a new belief. It may be the most current belief right now, but it's nothing that's been first discovered by our culture and our times. Luke chapter 18, we see what's called the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it starts off like this. He, referring to Jesus, also told this parable, a story, to some who trusted in themselves, right, I'm a good person, trusted themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. If you believe you're the standard of goodness, you believe you yourself on your own are righteous based on what you've done, then it's probably a natural instinct, a natural reaction to look down on everybody that doesn't measure up to you. Probably human nature. The story goes like this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. So two different people going to the religious center of the day. One, a Pharisee. And a Pharisee, a lot of times we just kind of think of legalism or kind of strict or harsh or judgmental, but there's more to it than that. It doesn't really do it justice. A Pharisee was actually a very regarded religious person. They were varsity level religion. I call them the Tom Brady of what it meant to follow the Lord, right? Just like elite status of religion. We're told in the history that they had the first five books of the Bible memorized. I'm like, really? (laughs) When I first hear that, I'm like, Okay, you sure about that? Like, I mean, I can't even find my keys half the time. Uh, you know, and these guys are the first. But this is the level of devotion that they had as religious people. Memorize the first five books of the Bible. I have like John three sixteen and Jesus wept. Right? Those are kind of those are kind of mine. So one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector, who would have been the opposite in this culture. This is not somebody who modern day worked for the government. Or maybe you work for the IRS you know, in their government role. This is not that kind of person. It's not frowned upon anymore. Now we don't get, we don't get excited about it. We're like, April 15th, let's go. I saw someone post on Twitter on April 15th. They're being dead serious. They're like, April 15th, every reminds me of the privilege to be a citizen in the United States. I'm like, dude, quit trying so hard. You don't really think that. We love America, but you're not excited about tax day. Uh, but the tax collectors in this culture were kind of a reverse Robin Hood. They would prey on vulnerable and poor people. Many of them were, were actually were Jews by heritage and had betrayed their people and sided with Rome and would overcharge you. And you couldn't do anything about it because they worked for the government. They could put you in jail. They could beat you, whatever it could be. They'd overcharge you and pocket the money. And every culture of any place, we look down on that sort of thing. So you have varsity level religious person in the Pharisees. And then you have a tax collector who would have been viewed as the opposite. He didn't view it as the lower level of what it meant to be a religious person. And they're both going to the temple to pray. The good of the good and the sinner of the sinners. Both participating in their act of religion here. So we see this. The Pharisee was standing, verse 11, and praying like this about himself. Remember, he believed that he was righteous so he could pray about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. 
First compared to culture as a whole, right? As long as you're keeping up with the moral Joneses, like I said earlier, you can feel good about yourself. God, I thank you that I'm not like all the people that are not as good as me. I'm not like other people. Greedy, he gets specific. Unrighteous, adulterers, and then he gets specific. You can always find someone a little worse than you, right? At least I hope you can, or in trouble. You always find someone a little worse than you are the standards of this world, or even like this tax collector. God, why am I righteous? I'm not like everybody else. You want to get real specific? I'm not like this tax collector over here. That tax collector, he robs from the poor. He would say he overindulges. What about me? I, verse 12, fast twice a week. He takes money that's not his, me. I give a tenth of everything I get. And then we see this strong contrast. Verse 13 with the word but, B-U-T, which sometimes can be one of the greatest small little words in all the Bible. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come. You may have life and have it more abundantly. But the tax collectors, that's just symbolized for us a strong contrast about to happen here. He's standing far off. He's not even in the main temple presence. He couldn't even bring himself to do it. We see he would not even raise his eyes to heaven. And he kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In other words, God, everything that the Pharisee is saying about me is true. So I'm not going to play the judgmental card. Who are you to judge? I'm not going to say, well, that Pharisee has sins too. Who is he to say that about me when he's not perfect either? I'm not going to make excuses. I'm not going to say that nobody's perfect. I'm going to do the only thing I can think to do in this moment. Because I've been exposed for who I am and for what I've done. And here I am in this religious setting that I felt for whatever reason drawn to come to, even though I feel so far away from God. God, I'm going to ask you to have mercy on me. Because I've run out of options. Because I'm sure I can find someone a little worse than me. Maybe even another level of worse than me in our culture. But the reality is I stand before you as a guilty sinner. I mean, I could maybe try to do more good deeds than bad deeds and see if they cancel each other out. It's like going to Chick-fil-A and ordering two fried chicken sandwiches, a large fry, and thinking you're fine because you got a Diet Coke. (laughs) That they cancel each other out. I'm not getting a salad today because I'm getting an unsweet tea. You know, that, that kind of idea. It just makes no sense. It makes no sense. Why? Because one sin separates us from God. Because God's standard is not how we measure up to someone else. It's how we measure up to him. And we've fallen short of his glory every single time. So what we deserve actually is God's just punishment of sin. It's an act of betrayal, a cosmic treason. God, no thanks. I don't want you. I want me instead. I don't want your creation. I, want the, I, don't, I don't want you the creator. I want the creation instead. Yeah. And here this task collector believed that in his life, 
There was more to be gained by disobeying God than there was to be gained by obeying him. He believed he had to go around God. This is a lie that all people believe. I'm not, I'm not reading this text. Every human on the face of the earth believes those two lies. One, that it's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. And the other one is I've got to go around God for what I'm looking for, yeah. rather than actually right to him. I've got to go around him for purpose, meaning, joy, fulfillment, happiness, rather than right actually to the Lord himself. And what does he say? He couldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. The Pharisees in the temple going, God, I thank you that I'm not like everybody else. You want evidence? Here's what I do. I'm not greedy. I'm not an adulterer. I fast twice a week, which sounds like a nightmare, by the way. Sorry if you couldn't tell. Uh, and <laughs> for those of you at the Northeast campus, I look better in person, I promise. So then, and I give a tenth of everything I get. I love that guy to be at my church. No, actually, not really. And because it'd be a pain, but <laughs> that's a Pharisee. So they get to the tax collector and he's like, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. And if I had something, do you realize what I've done in my life? Who I am? God, have mercy on me. And here's what's amazing God answered his prayer. Because where there's a lot of sin, Grace abounds even more. But the tax that we see is standing far off, and here's what Jesus says. I tell you, as in listen up, this one went down to his house justified, meaning declared not guilty, acquitted of sin. Then he draws this line in the sand, rather than the other. As in this one, not that one. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. And the greatest first step in humbling ourselves, which none of us are good at, it's not by being Eeyore and saying, you know, oh, I'm so terrible and the world is... No, it's by saying, God, I can't get to you and impress you on my own. I do not have what it takes. I am not righteous. I need your righteousness. And here's what's amazing. God freely provides it for us in the death of Jesus Christ, who actually was righteous, who actually did perfectly obey God's law, who actually was better than everyone else if there was a comparison. He was without sin, and even though he had never committed a sin, he was punished as if he did and stepped in our place to take on sins that we committed, a death that we deserved, And the result of that is that we now are declared righteous, those who put their faith in Christ. That the answer to the tax collector's prayer is Jesus and what he has come to do. And I'm telling you, this is the biggest hurdle we have in the southern part of the United States. I know Charlotte's a city where folks come from all over the country to live here, probably all over the world. But there still has that southern element to it living in North Carolina, which I thank God for. I love the South, right? I thank God for. I'm not, I'm not ripping on my homeland. You say, well, you're from Florida. It's not very southern. Well, Tallahassee, where I'm from, is almost right on the Georgia line. So, like, we back our trucks into parking places, you know, you know wear croquis, you know, all, all those kind of things. <laughs> I know you people. <laughs> but it's really hard to reach people who think they're fine. It's a lot easier to reach a tax collector who knows he's not. And there's some barriers in the way today. Some evangelistic barriers. They really aren't new, but they're very prominent today 
that are their own working outs in a modern context of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I think there's three main hurdles. We actually see all those things play out in this text that we need to overcome to have real evangelistic conversations. And by evangelistic conversations, everyone want to assume, I mean conversations about who Jesus is, what he's done for us on the cross, and why we need to trust in him. How we cannot save ourselves. We can't trust in ourselves that we are righteous. Because again, it's, it's, it's one thing, it's easier, I believe it's easier to have a spiritual conversation with an atheist. Because at least there's a clear starting point. They don't believe in God. That's the starting point. Someone from another religion, it's easier. I don't know a ton about all the world religions. Tallahassee's not that very prominent with a lot of world religions, but you can look it up and know what Muslims believe, know what Buddhists believe, know what Mormons believe, right? Know what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. There's a clear starting point for a conversation. It's really hard to have a starting point with someone who claims they believe in God, but don't actually know Jesus and find themselves to be good people. I call them unsaved Christians. People are, if you, like, unsaved Christian, how does that make sense? Well, someone, if you ask them if they're a Christian, they would say yes. But their reason for believing so has actually nothing to do with saving faith in the scriptures. And I see these three barriers stick out in this text. And the first one is simply belief. You might say belief. Isn't belief a good thing? Belief's a wonderful thing. But it actually can be a barrier in a gospel presentation with someone. I mean, look at this text here. The Pharisee here, who we're told went away not justified, as in not right with God. Jesus said, this one, the tax collector, not this one. He made it very clear that one is right with God, the other is not. How did he praise? And he actually says, God, I thank you. But if our understanding of God does not result in our belief that our righteousness does not save us, we might not actually believe in the God as he has presented himself to be. What happens around us in our context, in our communities, most of you don't know a ton of atheists. College students may be a little bit different. A campus is its own little world. But you don't know a ton of atheists. You know a couple, not a ton. You don't know a lot of agnostics, which is just an atheist with no guts. That's all that is. Hey, make a decision. You know, like, is he real or not? You know, like, most of you don't know people of other religions. Maybe one or again, maybe one or two max. But I would say all of you know people, and lots and lots of people, who claim they believe in God and claim to be good people, but you're not even sure if they're a Christian. It's all around us. This kind of generic theism, this belief. they kind of a big guy upstairs, sort of a divine Santa Claus, kind of a grandpa-type figure, or maybe a different kind of style. Maybe he was wearing a black robe like a judge. Just sort of this generic, vague understanding of the big guy upstairs. Here's what God means to me, people might say. Here's who I think he is. Well, here's one problem with that. God has told us who he is. He has made it clear in the scriptures. He has revealed himself to us. So if our belief in God does not lead us to see our need to be reconciled and forgiven by God, we might be following a God of American culture and not actually the God of the Bible. Belief can actually be in the way of someone actually trusting in Jesus. Well, I believe in God. What are you talking about? I'm good. I believe. Yeah, man. I'm an atheist. And people think they're Christians simply because they're not Buddhist, Muslim, or atheist. It's just kind of like a process of elimination. Are you a Christian? Of course I am. I'm just curious. Yeah, we never really had a spiritual conversation before. What makes you a Christian? Well, yeah, I'm a good person. I'm not an atheist, and I believe in God. I pray and stuff. 
That's really people's beliefs. And here we are trying to see someone, have someone help someone see their need for Jesus when they're really the Pharisee, not in a legalistic way, but in a trusting themselves that they are righteous kind of way. James chapter 2, he goes, okay, you believe in God? All right. So do the demons. He's like, you believe in God? Okay, want a cookie? Congratulations. So does the devil. The devil actually believes even more than that. The devil believes that Jesus existed. He knows that Jesus lived a perfect life. He did all he could to make him not. Tempted him. He knows Jesus went to the cross. And if anybody knows that Easter Sunday is real, if anybody knows why we put on our pastels and our seersucker suits and go to ham at Nana's, it's the devil. He believes in God, but he rejects Christ. Belief, which is a wonderful thing, can actually be a barrier to a gospel conversation. The second one is morals. Back to, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Look at me, he says. I give a tenth of everything I get. I'm not, I don't do these things. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not greedy. Again, that idea of being good people. I did a funeral a few years ago of a 19-year-old boy. So, of course, it was terrible. You know, and that young of a funeral was just sad. It was a boating accident. It was, just, it was just really terrible and really sad. And it was packed out in the room. I mean, just like thousand-something people. And the younger you are when you die, the more folks are at your funeral because all your friends are still alive. It's just kind of how it works. And the family, all believers, and he was a believer as well. His name's Heath. And the family sat me down. It's customary for a pastor before a funeral. You just have a meeting with the family, go over what they want done. And the family was insistent. They're like, please, whatever you do, make sure the gospel is clear. People know that Jesus is their only hope, that he is the way, the truth, the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. I said, I promise you that. So it's just pretty normal at a funeral. They had different people share. You know, four or five friends share. And they all did a wonderful job. It was a bro- his brother, his sister, good friend, roommate, all those things came up and they would say things like, Heath was the best person ever, you know, the best brother anyone could ever have, an amazing roommate, funniest guy I ever knew, just so kind and just cared and loved people. And just all really nice things they said. Very nice tribute to his life. Then I was up at the very end. I, I was the closer, like Mariana Rivera out of the pen. So I, I, I was the closer, which I was thankful for, the chance to really lift up Christ. And I came up there and I the people who were speaking were down in the front row, and they had already had their turn. I think it was four or five of them. And I said, first of all, I want to thank you for those who have shared this, this morning about Heath's life. I think what you said was beautiful and an amazing tribute to him. I also think that everything you said about Heath was 100% true. But not one of those things mentioned is why he is in heaven today. He's in heaven today because Jesus Christ died for his sins, and he believed that in faith and repentance. That's why he's in heaven today. Anything else, here's what we're saying. We're saying the book of Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 says that if righteousness can be achieved by keeping the law, by following the rules, by being a good person, Paul says, then Jesus died for nothing. Doesn't it sound blasphemous to even say that? Jesus died for nothing? It just sounds terrible to say that. If we believe that our goodness in any way, shape, or form, or our generic beliefs make us right with God, we're holding a big neon flashing sign up that says Jesus died for nothing. He came to seek and save those who were lost. But sometimes in cultural South, for us to get saved, people actually have to understand they're lost. And that our morals don't save us. And the last one is heritage. Now this Pharisee became a Pharisee most likely through a lineage. 
like a strong Jewish Hebrew background of law-keeping people. You know, we're, what, are y'all Christians? Of course we're Christians. We're the Jones family. We got three pews named after relatives at the First Baptist Church, you know, kind of idea. Heritage is a wonderful thing. Praise the Lord for a godly line of influence and people who took their children and grandchildren to church and more importantly even taught them about Jesus Jesus and read the Bible and, and all these things that matter so much. Local church, Bible, prayer, uh, fellowship, all these things. They were a part of all that. Heritage is a wonderful thing. Can the faith be passed down? Absolutely. Can it be inherited? Absolutely not. People must make their own decision to follow Christ. Jesus said, you must be born again. And when you hear born again language, it makes you kind of go, oh, that's kind of like old like tent revival-ish kind of you know, sort of thing. No, it's not. It's Jesus kind of thing. Right. Jesus said that. We must be born again, dead to who we used to be, made alive in Christ. Dead in our sins, raised in newness of life, as the scriptures tell us. We must be born again. But heritage sometimes can get in the way for two reasons. One, you think you're a Christian in the same way you would say that you're from North Carolina or, you can, or identify as your race or whatever it might be. Like you just kind of tag Christian onto that, just kind of part of the makeup of who you are, you think. And the other thing is that the older generational parents and grandparents insist you are a Christian. Even though there's been no fruit in your life, you don't even follow Jesus because they say that you prayed a prayer when you were five. Now, can God use that prayer when you're five? Absolutely. I see it as a tool. But we can't make faith in Christ out to be a rite of passage. Almost the same stuff that we maybe give our Catholic friends a hard time for. They're kind of like your first communion, your confirmation, those kind of things. Like that kind of makes you okay. And it's easy to kind of go, eh. But how oftentimes do Christians treat coming to faith in the same way? It's like, okay, it's your turn to go meet with the pastor. It's your turn to go do this. And there's never actually been a saving faith that took place in their life. I come from a very cultural Catholic family. And one day, I'm already a, um, a believer by now. I'm a pastor by now. So I'm an adult. And I'm sitting out with my grandpa. We're watching football, which is normal for us. Uh, my grandpa was like a hero of mine. He was, uh, died at 89 years old, World War, World War II vet, just awesome guy. And we're sitting there, and he goes, Dino, that's what he called me. He goes, I have a question. He said, why aren't you Catholic? And I'm like, oh my. I'm about to go reformation with my 89-year-old World War II veteran grandpa. And I have so much respect for him, so I just kind of carefully just sort of explain the basic reason of why I'm not convictionally, what I believe about the Bible and grace and faith and the church and all those kind of things. He goes, I don't understand. Your dad's Catholic. I said, Pops, no, he's not. He's like, yes, he is. I said, he's a deacon at our Baptist church. I hope he's not. That'd be kind of problematic. <laughs> that'd, be sort of, that'd be sort of a thing. No, he's not. He's Catholic. I was like, he's in the other room. Go ask him. <laughs> well, your Uncle Tim, who's his oldest son, my dad's brother, he's Catholic. I was like, Pops, he's an atheist. Like, he's like an angry atheist. Like, he has like a Darwin fish in the back of his car. He like doesn't believe in God and is mad about it. Okay, like, I mean, he's like that. He's like philosopher guy. Well, he's Catholic. No, he's not. <laughs> Call him right now. He'll probably curse you. Like, he's like, it's angry about it. Your Uncle Ted, his youngest son. He's Catholic. I was like, Pops, he's nothing. He doesn't believe anything. He's just kind of whatever. Well, I just don't understand why you're not Catholic. And I learned something that day. None of his three sons are Catholic, yet he insists all three are. For my grandpa, and this is not to pick on Catholics, but this is for my grandpa and many people you know, being Catholic 
was more important than believing Catholic. And I ain't picking on them for how many Protestant Christians is being a Christian more important than actually believing Christian. And where does that begin? It begins in our need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's our belief in who God is. That he's not some big man upstairs, that he's a holy God. That he has made us to worship him and to know him. But we rejected that and said, God, no thanks. I don't want you, I want your stuff instead. My way. But God, rather than punishing us as our sins deserved, sent his one and only son, who had never sinned and did never sin, to die in our place. So as a result, our job is not to say, God, look at me and I thank you. I'm not like other people. Here's all the things that I do. Here's my resume. But instead to say, God, here's my life. This tax collector here, I love it. His, his reply is, he didn't go into anything else. He's like, God, have mercy on me. He's like, yes, me, guilty. Everything, I don't know if it was in the moment or at the temple. You know, There's the atmosphere. Whatever it is caught his attention. Maybe it was the Pharisee you know, indicting him, calling him out. Or said he stood far away. So maybe he's kind of hiding the back, kind of checking things out. Wondering if there's a word for him or hope for him. Here's what I know. There's not a person in this room who's too far away from God to be saved. Because yeah. if you're too far away from God, it means we all are. Because for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But thankfully, God has given us the solution. He's given us the way. He not only made the demand, which is holiness, he met the demand that we couldn't meet in the holiness of Jesus Christ. So if, we per, so if we proclaim any other message in our community, oh, then Jesus is the one who saves. Not your goodness, not your heritage, not your generic beliefs, not the fact that you come from this Christian family. Prayers don't save you. Moments don't save you. Good deeds don't save you. Jesus saves you. What great news. What amazing news that I don't have. Like, I haven't measured up, but Jesus has. Yeah. I feel bad for the Pharisee because he's missing out not just on relationship with God and forgiveness and heaven and all, all these things, but you know, he's missing out here on earth, he's missing out on having the weight taken off of his shoulders, yeah. of feeling like he has to do enough and measure up, rather than saying, no, Jesus, you're the one who's done it all, and you're the one who measures up, so I want to find myself in you. Yeah. And that happens through trusting in Jesus to be the one who provides the mercy that we need to reconcile us to God through his blood shed on the cross and his glorious resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the truth of the scriptures that our good works do not justify us. We're thankful for that because that were true. We would never be able to work enough. There'd never be enough good deeds. Or there'd never be enough performance, enough heritage, enough church. But Lord, we are thankful that Jesus is enough. So I ask we will not be people who trust in ourselves that we are righteous. We'll be people who instead trust in the righteousness of Jesus alone. I'm thankful for everyone in this room who's a Christian that they are the tax collector story, that at some point in their life they proclaim, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and you answered that prayer. Yeah. So now let us live our lives in light of that mercy, responding to your grace, responding to your love. But wanting to live lives that honor you, that live lives that love your church, and that will be part of your mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus to a community and to a world that needs it so badly. I thank you for Mercy Church. Lord, I ask these campuses, you use this church 
to make a huge impact in the city for Christ, and that every person that's watching from the Northeast campus, that's sitting in this room right now, that's watching online, that every person that knows Jesus will be confident today in their salvation, knowing that it's not of themselves, it's all of you. We're grateful for that in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's stand together. It's good to be with you.